resurrection. If we don't have resurrection, what do we have, right? Yeah. 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 And so I, the way I kind of sold the book in a way to the editor was I said, I want to write a book for people who love Jesus very much, uh, but they're no longer willing to lie about what hurts. Yeah. We really need to tell better stories instead of complaining about it, right? What if we just start telling the stories and flood the airwaves with something different? It's so good to finally get to connect with you. Yeah. Uh, a couple months ago, I saw Dr. Susan Armstrong reading your book, and I'm like, I need to know more about this gal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it turns out um, we have a connection that I didn't know about, um, Benji Goss. Oh, yeah. He's a yep. student of mine. So, I mean, I'm not teaching at this point yet, but, um, um, but has been very involved with campus ministries and whatnot. And so he came and said, hey, I saw that you're doing an interview with her, and she was one, she was one of my mentors. So that was very fun. Yeah, yeah. He messaged me on Instagram, and uh, oh, we do, our district does the Ministry Assessment Center weekend. And so he was in my group um, this past October. Yeah, it was exciting to He's hear a good his guy. story. And, yeah, he is. And you have been, now how long have you been at Mount Vernon Nazarene University? Um, I've been here for four months. So I, I knew it was pretty new assignment. Yeah. And what are you, so what exactly is your assignment there? Mm-hmm. Um, I you, am, like, yeah, name? my title is um, I'm the university campus pastor. So they have changed the role of chaplain um, to campus pastor. So it's really just a change of title more than it is a change of um, of job. But they wanted to emphasize right. the pastoral um, the, the pastoral dimension of this particular office. Um, so that's my title is I'm the university campus pastor. I like that they changed the title. Yeah. So, um, but just, you know, for people who are listening, you know, a lot of them have actually didn't go to, um, you know, they did alternative methods of um, training and schooling. So yeah. what, like, what do you do as the campus yeah. pastor? Well, at, um, at most of our Nazarene, at all of our Nazarene universities in the States, we have um, required spiritual formation. Um, so that means that chapel and other forms of spiritual formation are required as a part of their um, their responsibility as a student. So they go to class, they participate in other things, but they also participate in spiritual formation. And that looks differently in every campus. But um, our current model is we have chapel. um, So that's like a corporate worship service type thing. Um, And we usually have either a preacher come and preach on a text or a speaker speak around a specific topic. Um, Usually, here's this issue. This is what it means for Christians, that type of thing. That's also the context where we um, students sometimes share testimonies and we have some interactive worship experiences in that space as well, in the chapel space. But there's other things too. We do um, small groups for freshmen. Um, We do mentoring relationships between faculty and staff. Um, Cosmo groups, which are community service groups that go out into this local community, as well as um, international um, and domestic service learning trips. And those are all different ways that students can receive their required spiritual formation uh, credits. Just kind of emphasize the a holistic approach to the to discipleship that we learn yeah. both in in corporate worship, also in small group contexts, as well as through uh, service to Christ and Christ Church. Now, do you, do you guys have uh, like college church too there on campus? We do not. We are one of the universities that um, was created in such a way that they they did not choose that model. So there is there are four Nazarene churches in town, but we do not explicitly okay. have a college church. Okay. And that was that was so, intentional. I don't know the reasons, but it was intentional. Yeah. Okay. Well, I kind of like that idea. Um, mm-hmm. That I think I would prefer that model. Top of my head, thinking about it. But 
Um, so how do you then, like, how do you structure your small groups? Like, how do people, is it based on when people come in or their, mm-hmm. tra- uh, whatever their major is? Or like, how do yeah. you structure your small groups and find a ways to kind of put them into their, yeah. you know, whatever? Well, Not funnel, I'll tell you but what, you know what I'll, I mean. Yeah, no, I get it. I'll tell you what we're currently doing, and then I'll kind of talk to you yeah. a little bit about what um, kind of some of our plans are. So I came in um, so late. I mean, I came in July, and the students arrived within five or six weeks after I got here. So yeah. my kind of posture in coming here was I am not going to change anything. I tweaked two right. minor things. Um, but I'm not going to change the programming because I needed to learn it first. I needed to understand right. what was happening on the ground. Um, and then this spring we'll be measuring kind of some effectiveness of those particular programs and um, see what might need to be adjusted. But anyway, the current model is that only freshmen participate in a structured small group. The upperclassmen can do mentoring relationships. Some of those are one-on-one and some of them are group mentoring, which essentially kind of functions as a small group. But the specific small mm-hmm. group structure we currently have is freshmen, and it is based on their um, their living arrangement. So it's based on their assignment in the dorms. So it's residentially based. So it's who you are closest to on your floor. Um, And they are automatically put into a small group and then a upper class, what could be sophomore, junior, senior, um, a pair of them usually is the leader of that. And they lead them through a kind of a specific structure that – my associate pastor did put into place that is a little bit different than has been in the past. So that's for freshmen. They do not have to participate in that, but they are automatically put into one. So if you're like, hey, I want to do small groups, you know exactly where you're supposed to go. Um, They're introduced to that right at the beginning of the semester. And then for some of our students who are commuter students, if they have um, expressed a desire to be a part of a small group, they can be placed in a residential one or they can be in one um, kind of as commuters together. It doesn't work super well for commuters because they're so often off campus during the times the small groups meet. Um, So that's something that we're evaluating. In the future, um, I would like to um, explore a little bit of a more robust small group system. And I think they've done some various expressions of that in the past. Um, And sometimes things are really effective for a season and then lose effectiveness for whatever reason, and you revisit those in the future. So we're going to be kind of exploring what small groups might look like for beyond moving beyond just the freshmen. Yeah. Do you have a big population of people who commute in? Yeah. I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but um, we have a, our undergraduate population is um, 1,400, give or take a few students. Um, And I do not know how many of those are on or off campus. So um, I'm not familiar with that part of Ohio. Are you you guys rural there? Are you more suburban? Yeah, pretty rural. We're about 40 miles outside of, outside of Columbus, but um, they're 40 long miles (laughs) because there's a lot of, there's a lot of small towns between here and there. And so it's a lot of kind of like slowing down and going 30 because you have 17 small towns to go through, but overall it is, would be classified as rural. Okay. We're not directly attached to a Metro. Right. So then, so people are going to go, if they're going to commute, they're going to, they either live in the area and there's nowhere else to go or they're really making attention to come there. Is that how, is that kind of how it works? Yeah. There's a lot of people that come from small towns kind of around the area. Yeah. Okay, yeah, because where I'm at, we're, we just we have like we already have a couple of community colleges that are close, and then large universities. Okay. We're not as rural, so it's real easy here to commute to, you know, two or three. Mm-hmm. You have like two yeah. or three different options. Yeah. Now, you were in were you in Iowa or Idaho? Where were you before? We were in uh, prior to this assignment. We were in Idaho, mm-hmm. and so I'm just curious, how did this kind of well? We could talk about Idaho in a minute, but just how did this come up that you ended up? <laughs> you know, how did God kind of maneuver yeah. you into this yeah. place? 
Well, um, it wasn't my intention necessarily. I wasn't um, like part of my life plan was not to eventually become a college chaplain. Um, that wasn't necessarily right. on my radar. I had a lot of other intentions for ministry. I originally thought I was going to be exclusively in like cross-cultural ministry, international. Uh, we were uh, missionaries um, for a year in Italy right after I graduated from college. I did that for a year, came back to go to seminary, and during that time started co-pastoring in a rural church in Missouri for six years. And then I uh, went to um, Mount Home where we were co-pastors there, my husband and I, for uh, four and a half years. So that was the model that we had, yeah. had had done, you know, shared that role. And it worked really well for us. We have really young, you know, we have young children and financially we were able to make that work. And so it actually was a pretty workable model. But um and some wonderful things about co-pastoring that I'm really, really grateful for. But also we were beginning to sense, uh, although we deeply loved that church and had no desire to leave the church, um, we were sensing a little bit of... I don't know, a stirring of some sort, just feeling like co-pastoring is maybe not going to be the route that we wanted to pursue long-term for our, yeah. our ministry life. And there were certain ways in which we both felt a little bit um, hindered by the other, like, I want to, th- you know, that we would hold each other back, not in intentional ways, but we are very different personality-wise. Right. And there's ways that he can flourish when I'm not present and vice versa, ways that I can yeah. flourish when he's not present. And, and so we were just like, what does this look like long-term? Is there, is there a way forward for us? And even right. as before we were even really articulating some of those things out loud, I got uh, an email from Mount Vernon asking um, from one of um, their associates, somebody associated with the school, asking if I would consider applying. And at first I was oh, like, okay. I don't know, this isn't really on my radar. Um, you know, the ego is like, oh, wow, getting asked. That's exciting. You know, nobody, <laughs> everybody likes to be asked. But then practically it's like, I don't know if I have the skill set for this. Like this is a huge, right. this is a huge change. And I was like, oh, I I don't think I want to do this. And um, part of it really came down to um, feeling pretty inadequate for the task. Like, this is beyond me. I don't have the capacity for this, whatever. And my husband is the one who said, Stephanie, I can see better than you, like more clearly than you. Like, you have some gifts and graces that you're not really acknowledging here. And I think that you need to pursue this. You need to explore this and see see what might happen. And so at his encouragement um, and him kind of believing on my behalf, because at that point I was like, this is beyond me. They're not going to pick somebody like me. You know, um, that's really how I felt. I sent, he helped me, you know, edit my CV and all those things and uh, sent that off. And then it was like radio silence. I heard nothing for like two months. Um, and I was like, well, yeah. okay, they did not like me. It's fine. Um, but it turns out that was not the case. They were going through their own process. Um, the role had become empty kind of quickly and unexpectedly from a retire, um, the guy that retired. And, um, and so they decided they were going to do this kind of an extended interim to really evaluate who are we and what do we truly want in this role and see what they were doing some of their own soul searching on the other side. Um, while I, in Idaho, um, the Lord was taking me as well through a pretty significant um, period of uh, refinement in preparation, yeah. for, I think, just for my own soul's health, but also to be ready, I think, to come into this space. And so I came to interview in February, and I just prayed. Um, and I was at that place. I was, I was at a place of real contentment. The Lord had really done some good and holy disruption in my life. Yeah. And I came in and said, you know, I have no, no dog in this fight. My ego's not on the line. It is, you know, if I have a sense of peace and a sense of hope and a sense that there is a future here, not only for my family, but a sense of future for my ministry, my vocation, in this place, Lord, just give me a sense of peace and clarity. And um, the day, the time, my time here went very well. It became pretty clear early on that I was on the, the president and I were on the same page in terms of philosophy yeah. and theology and stuff, because we have a theologian for a president, which is wonderful. So that was just a gift. The Lord was just extremely clear. And then I get home, and again, radio silence, because they went on, they have a two-week spring break, and so there was like nothing. I'm like, this is like yeah. the worst. 
Um, but okay, <laughs> okay as well. And so they called and um, offered me the job in March, and we were able to delay the announcement for a little bit because of part of Nazarene polity is they kind of want a quick turnaround once the pastor resigns. And so just right. for our family and, like, our kids and school and whatever, we um, had to kind of sit with that for a little bit without announcing. And that was really hard. And then we yeah. announced in April, um, and they did their announcement on their end. And boom, 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 the ball started rolling, and here I come. Whoa. July 8th was my first day in the office. So, <laughs> yeah. So are you, are you a strength finders person? Do you know your um, I'm not. I, I did it a long time ago, but I didn't feel like they were terribly accurate looking back at no. them. I'm like, I don't know if that's me or not, because Achiever wasn't even on my list, and that is such a clear part of my like identity. Yeah, I was actually going to say, you've got to have Achiever in your top five. It wasn't, Maybe and that's what six. really caused me to cast <laughs> doubt on that whole metric. No, but Communicator was, um, Woo oh, was there on there, go. which for a while I didn't agree with that one, but I do see now um, ways in which I want to win people over and to get people on the team and create a, you know, a culture in a certain way. So yeah. a little bit, but I'm not as familiar with that particular metric. Yeah. All right. You've probably done eight past then, right? I have not. What? You've not done the Apostle Prophet Evangelist no, Shepherd Teacher? I've, no. Oh, when you goodness, said that, when you mentioned it to me, I had never heard of it. I don't know if that makes me a oh, terrible right, person right. or what. You did too. No, no, no. I did I not just... know what it was your track and the way you've gone, I thought, oh, I'm sure she's done APEC. I probably but, did it uh, way back in the day, like in seminary or <laughs> undergrad probably. or something. And then you block it, you know. Well, you just do so many, like, personality tests and so many questions, right. you know, all those, the whole thing when you're in school like that. All right, so you had this waiting that they, when they called and said, hey, you should apply. Yep. And you mentioned, you talk about this refining process. So what do you think, what, what was probably, like, the biggest thing that God really did to refine you in those those months between applying and then interviewing. Well, it was really unexpected and really quite rude of the Lord, frankly. Um, it took me through <laughs> just a really a challenging path. Um, I was in the midst of, um, I'd started spiritual direction, so meeting with someone who was um, serving as a spiritual director, just kind of helping me uh, perceive what God was doing in my life, and he was using some different tools. Yeah. That, um, the Enneagram is actually one of the tools that God was using in my life at that time, um, as well okay, as... Okay, so now are you was, a three? I am a three. I'm yeah, very much a three. <laughs> I am a three, three, baby, uh, with, with a four wing. So that's why I cry a lot. Yeah. But anyway, so that was just an important tool. And some people, you know, think it's, you know, just trendy or whatever. But for me, it was really helped name some sinful patterns in my life that were really just coping mechanisms for wounds. You know, the sins of pride and of ego and of vanity and of image that were really um, kind of my shell covering for just a lot of insecurity and feelings of inadequacy and failure um, that were rooted partly in my own measures of success because of just how I'm, how I'm oriented and geared, um, but also just a deep need for people's approval and some things like that. Um, and some of that stems, I think, just from, like I said, my own personality, but also being a woman in ministry, I have felt for a long time just a real need to prove myself, um, especially being a co-pastor. Yeah. Oftentimes I felt yeah. like people only perceived me as a pastor because I just happened to be attached to a man. And for a long time, right. that was a real, um, a real sensitive spot in me, a real feeling of um, inadequacy. And so I could become really defensive. Um, and so this, this guy comes into our life, and I've, I've mentioned this on a couple other things I've, I've, people I've talked to, but a guy came into our life, he went to our church, and he's like, hey, I need to meet with you and to talk about some things. The Lord laid on my heart, which immediately, if you're a pastor, strikes fear in your heart because you're like, what? right, yeah. you want, what? <laughs> and he's like, we need to meet five times for an hour. And I'm like, okay, cool. I guess I don't get a vote here. So anyway, he came in, and it was really kind of disorienting at first. And But we came pretty clear early on that although this was a very unusual individual, that he clearly um, had um, a line to God in some way that um, – 
we don't, you don't see very often someone who just had a very unique prophetic voice is really what I would say. And we talked right. through a lot of different things about some conflict Tommy and I were experiencing as co-pastors and he named some things that he had no way of knowing. And um, finally just right. said to me, listen, you are so tough and you're so strong and you have all, you know, you're so articulate and you're so gifted, la, 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 la. Also, you're fragile as glass and your ego is always on the line. And um, we love you, but we will not be your trophy. And I was crushed. I was absolutely crushed. And he said, you yeah. need to take a break from preaching. And because that was my pride, like preaching was my, I love to do that. And I love that. And he said, you've got to get out of the pulpit. You've got to get out of the spotlight because it's destroying you. And so, yeah. and I was like, excuse me, I'm sorry. I have a series on Ruth Bland. Step off, you know. <laughs> and, he, and he, I was like, well, Ruth can wait. This can't. And so yeah. that was like in October of last year, and I stepped out of the pulpit, and Tommy just preached the rest of the year up through um, December. Anytime I had an opportunity to be in the spotlight, I just pushed it aside and let, pushed somebody else forward and just let the Lord love me in that time. And it was so insane how every sermon, every song, every devotional, every you know time I was in the Word was constantly bringing me back to this truth that you are the beloved. You are the beloved of God, and it has nothing to do with your performance I have a depression anxiety diagnosis and so often my anxiety is just rooted in other people's perceptions of me and, um, yeah. and my performance, you know, as well as biological factors um, in my brain. Um, but those certainly right. don't help. The Lord just really ministered to me in that time, um, humbling me in some really, really significant ways that were really a blessing, but also extremely painful, really refining time. Um, and right at the end of that, I had shared it with a few, a few people that the Lord was doing this work in me, a few people in the congregation that I trusted, because everyone else just assumed, oh, she's just finishing her book, and so Tommy's going to preach for a little bit more for a while, whatever, right. no one cared, no one cared. And I didn't correct them. I just let them think that. In this, and I told some people that, um, a few individuals, that I was nervous about going back to the pulpit. I knew that the Lord had done this good, refining work in me, and I was nervous, like, can I do this task or this preaching task or do I need to explore other routes of ministry that aren't as, as dangerous, right? right. And um, a lady came up to me a few days later and stopped me in the foyer and said, I have a word from the Lord for you. I'm like, not again, for pity's sake, Lord, this is enough. <laughs> and said to me, um, when you first came, I told the Lord, well, she can be a lady speaker, but she's certainly not going to be a past my, my pastor. And she said, I felt so clearly from the Lord. She goes, I remember it was three years ago because that year the berries were growing across from the beans. And she measured time by like how she gardened. It was so precious. But she said to him, <laughs> the Lord said to her, who are you? to say whom I've anointed, and I've anointed her. And she goes, from that moment, you became my pastor. And so now I say to you, pastor, you have been anointed to do this work, and you need to get back in that pulpit. And it was just like this ridiculous, like, God, are you serious? You've been so <laughs> explicit in your instruction to me. And so during, like, to, to take me out of that space and then to put me back into that space, but I really feel like through that, through working with my spiritual director, through, um, through doing some significant soul work with some various tools, including the Enneagram, as well as just other study and writing and things like that. The Lord just did some real refining work in me, um, just uncovering some of my wounds that were really resulting in some just simple patterns. Um, and so when I came to interview, um, I just was at, at a place where I felt secure um, in God's yeah. love for me and realized that even if this job wasn't what it was supposed to be, if this wasn't the path that we were going to go down, it was okay. And yet I could still walk forward in courage, knowing that I have been anointed to do this work of the Lord. And if it's in this space, that's okay. And if it's in Idaho, that's okay too. And so I think that freedom um, allowed me to speak boldly and prophetically and honestly to the interview people and to the president so I could be truly who I am without 
trying to portray a specific image that would endear me to someone or impress them, but to truly be who God made me to be. And that has borne some really positive fruit. The transition has been extremely challenging, uh, but I do have a sense that this is this is the Lord's path for our family. Yeah. She had a couple of people in the course, like in a fairly short period of time, came up to you and kind of spoke a word. Is, yeah, has that truly. kind of been a pattern? For, has that kind of been a pattern? No. This is like not that? a pattern. No. <laughs> this, this is, is like a very kind of brand new strange, thing. disruptive way the board <laughs> decided to work. And I don't know if that, you know, maybe to be more explained, I felt the Lord's, you know, presence and guidance through Scripture all the time. But honestly, right. I had never been in a relationship with a person or congregant that um, that I trusted so deeply and that they came in to speak to my life in that particular way. It just was it right. was wild. It was not at all what I expected. Um, but I'm so grateful to the Lord, and I'm grateful to those particular servants of the Lord who chose mm-hmm. to speak courageously to um, to their leader. And I will never cease to be grateful for that. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about this guy real quick, just for a brief moment, and then I'll ask something else. But <laughs> so mysterious, right? So how? Well, because there was a, a discernment process I want to talk about for you know, because some of the people who listen to the podcast are newer in ministry, and so kind of want to give them some tools. So how long has he been a part of your congregation before he kind of came to you and said, hey, I need to talk to you? Um, we had been at the church for four years at that point. Okay. And so he had been in the church that long? Yeah. Often not mean, yeah, he was very much a part of the congregation. He wasn't always the most regular okay. attender. He kind of came to and fro and I'm kind of an unusual, um, unusual individual, but someone who, right. for whatever reason, um, we loved and trusted deeply. We had a good connection with that family and mm. they had always been extremely kind and supportive to us. And I don't know if I could re- have received that hard of a word from many people, um, right. But I, I, I was able to receive it from him because I trusted that his intention um, was to speak the word of the Lord to me. He had no ego in the game. He had no particular, like, agenda right. for me. The Spirit brought us together for that time. Right. Yeah, because I, I think that, you know, occasionally God will bring somebody that you've never met in, in, and then you have to kind of discern, well, is this really from the Lord or not? Yeah, but truly. it's a whole different thing when you have a relationship. And so you've, you had that relationship already mm-hmm. established. So it wasn't kind of coming cold, right? Well, I don't um, know. He'd never done anything like that before. I mean, most of the time right. we just talked about, you know, just things about life and family and whatever. This was a new dimension to our relationship. But I think really That's the spirit just made kind of pave the way. Um, and opened yeah. up our hearts and minds in that in that time. So I've been reading your book a little bit, so I'm, I'm like, yeah. um, I'll try to I'll try to plug it so people can. So I don't want to, I don't want to repeat too much. So then they no, go read the book and they're like, yeah. I just heard all this. But talk a little bit about your call because originally mm-hmm. you you felt a call more to missions, and mm-hmm. so just talk about how that call came and then when did it kind of morph and become yeah, for sure. something? Uh, I guess. I guess I should ask first question. When you missionary work, did you think that was going to be ordained missionary work? Or when did it transition from missionary to ordained ministry? Well, I first felt my, I mean, I began to kind of feel the stirrings of the Lord inviting me into like vocational Christian service, probably not when I was about 14. Right. And my, I just kind of felt that, but I, you know, wasn't able to name really well what that was. But then that summer um, of summer, it was 1999, I was my NYC, my Nazarene Youth Conference in Toronto, oh, yeah. Canada. And um, just the Lord made it very clear that he was, was indeed inviting me into the specific future of serving him. And um, I really felt distinctly that that was to cross-cultural ministry. And at the time, I didn't understand the 
what ordination should, I mean, my dad was ordained, like he was a pastor, but I didn't necessarily know what role ordination fit in my particular journey. And for missionaries, like I didn't know if missionaries got ordained or not. Like all I knew was I felt God was calling me into this particular thing. And so I just threw myself into that fully, um, into, you know, language study in high school and as many mission trips as I could do and, you know, traveled overseas, you know, so many times by the time I even got to college and just felt very clear, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. Um, but then I get to college and they're like, well, missionary, which it's not like the missionary books in the past. You don't just move to, you know, Swaziland and you stay there until you die. Like it's not, it's not like it was in the past. Like there's this different model and it's, it's raising up and training national, you know, leadership and just, it's a totally different model than, I think my and my ignorant teenage self totally totally understood. So like, what are you going to do when you get there? Like, what's your marketable skill? Like, are you going to be a teacher? Are you going to be a nurse? Are you going to be a pastor? You going to how are you going to what training are you going to receive? So ultimately, I switched my major. I made a missions minor and switched to Christian education. I was like, I want to, you know, disciple and train and teach and all those kind of things to people of the church. And when, um, but did get on that point, did get on the ordination track during my undergraduate time. So, okay, yeah, I'll get ordained and then I'll go, you know, be ordained and go overseas and be a missionary. And so right after, um, my husband was a year older than me. So we got married after my junior year. He'd already graduated. So my senior year, uh, we were married. He was working and we just lived like in this little dinky basement hole of an apartment not far from the campus <laughs> mid-america and then right after um, i graduated we went overseas as volunteer missionaries with the church of the nazarene in sicily for a year and did good work there i mean um it was it was challenging work it was in you know in europe slow going you know very much like teaching english and developing relationships and having spiritual conversations it's not like you plan a church every three days like you do in some of the southern hemisphere but it was good work and it was formational work and um, then we came back to the States in part because my mother-in-law was ill and my husband needed to be with her as an only child. But also um, I realized like if I'm going to do this, like I need more education and I just had this deep, right. deep hunger for, for more schooling, for seminary in particular. So I started seminary and my husband started, he was just kind of interning at a local church and that was as a youth pastor and that was going, that was going fine. But ultimately he's like, I'm tired of being an intern. Like I've been an intern forever. Like I'm ready to you know, get to work. And I'm like, cool, do that. Find a church, serve at a church and I'm going to go to seminary and then we will go overseas again as quickly as possible. So he accepted uh, the pastorate of this small rural congregation. We go up there and it's going to be a commute to seminary back and forth. And I'm like, that's fine. No worries. You pastor, I'll go to seminary. And um, as he's, you know, they're doing the special service to kind of bring him into the fold, right? They're giving him a Bible. They're giving me all these symbols that symbolize um, the pastorate. I'm sitting in the pew and all of a sudden I'm like weeping and they're like, oh, she's such, she's such a good wife. She's just such a good pastor's wife, you know? And, but in my heart, I am feeling so agitated. And so like, what is going on? I, I'm supposed to be up there. And part of it is I have a really bad case of FOMO. Like I never want to be like that fear of missing out. Like I should be up there. I should be, you know, that kind of thing. But also I knew something in me was like, we're supposed to be doing this together. Like I, what am I doing just sitting on the sidelines here? Like I'm called into ministry too. And I didn't necessarily imagine rural Missouri, but this is where we are for the moment. So why don't I go full in? So within a few months, our DS had arranged it and met with our board and stuff. And we, they voted to make me a full-time co-pastor alongside him. So he was, um, we were co-pastoring and I was going to seminary. And so he did most of the preaching at that point. And the attention really was still at some point we'd go back overseas, but some significant um, circumstances changed it. The economy crashed. They weren't sending a lot more missionaries at that time. And over time, kind of without my permission, frankly, the Lord was really shaping my heart to be the heart of of a shepherd to, to preach. When I got to preach, I just felt like I came alive getting to, you know, exegete the word and to connect people to be the bridge between, you know, the, the study of the academy and to the people in the pews 
who are just trying to, you know, get their kids, you know, keep their kids safe and, you know, go to work and all those things. So I wanted to be that bridge that helped the word come alive to, to my people and um, realize that the Lord is doing that thing in me and that um, at that time there wasn't a place internationally for me to serve in that part- for us to serve in that particular way. So we just persisted in the co-pastorate ministry and ultimately did that for over a decade in two different locations. And so it was interesting. It was not what I planned. Like I thought I was going to, you know, boom, 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 mm-hmm. be back overseas as quickly as possible. And yet here I find myself, the Lord shaping me to be this, the shepherd and this pastor, a preacher, you know, this, a prophetic voice. And so I don't know if that's, I'm not some prophet, but to say the, to right. say, to speak to the mm-hmm. people of God in a, in a unique way. Yeah. I don't view myself as necessarily thing. even like a, like a, like a church planter, but to talk to the people of God, particularly those who have been there for so long, and to help um, the gospel to to reawaken within them um, is truly my deepest heart's desire. Um, to see people who might be on the fringe, or you know, even nominal, or have had just enough just enough faith to be just a little bit immune <laughs> to to speak the gospel in such a way that they they find a home, they find a home in the heart of God. And now you're preaching every week, except for when you have guest speakers. Right. Well, it's a little, yeah, it's a little different. Um, so I preach, I actually preach more about, um, in chapel, this semester I've preached about five, maybe five or six times. So my goal is to preach at least once a month in chapel because we only have, um, and then to bring in different voices as well. So I preach okay. um, there, but then I shape the entire, like the theme and what people, you know, I invite them to speak around certain themes um, and oversee a lot. I don't get to preach nearly as frequently as I'd like to, but the thing that is nice about that is that when I do preach here, um, it's extremely intentional. I get a little bit more time to pour into those messages right. than I would when I was in the local parish. And my hope is, yeah. is that over time I'll be able to to travel a little bit and to speak um, in some other churches as well. But it is a privilege when I get to, to preach to my own students. Yeah, in the local pastorate, Sundays come fast and furious. So yeah, yeah, I know that rhythm pretty <laughs> well. You're like pretty well. Well, I have one point today. Uh, so what's your husband doing now? Because you're doing this. Mm-hmm. What's he doing? Mm-hmm. So How's when we first came. His- he really spent his most of his time because we came in the summer, so there was no school going on. Um, he spent like just devoted himself to being the full time stay at home parent to make sure our kids transitioned well. Because like I said, right. it was kind of a, a challenging move. So he's been a stay at home dad. Um, he also has an online kind of marketing company. He's been trying to develop over the last um, couple years, but is hopefully um, pursuing opportunity. We've took it took us a while to land in a church because when you've been a pastor of a church for so long, it's kind of hard to figure out. How does one become right. a layperson? I'm freakish layperson, though I am, you know, right. <laughs> um, and though he is as well. Like, what does it mean for us to be in the church? And so that's taken a while for us to find a home, but we finally did land. And we're just looking for opportunities, and I think the Lord is going to make that path clear of um, ways for him to, to express his gifts and graces in the context in right. which we find ourselves. So we did not pursue um, him taking on a full church, like to be the pastor of a church, um, mainly because that just would be beyond our capacity to pastor this campus as well as a congregation with two kids, like a seven-year-old and a -a three-and-a-half-year-old. That just was not going to be within the margin of our family. Um, Just trusting the Lord is going to make make that clear (laughs) as we move forward. Well, you wrote a book. I did. And I saw you've you've published published articles and stuff like that, too. So Uh this isn't really your first publishing. But this is your first published book, right? 
Yeah, I've done. Yeah. Um, I've contributed to devotionals, and then Dr. Jess Middendorf and I just finished a set of two devotionals for the Nazarene denomination, um, Lenten devotionals. One will come out in 2020, or 2020, and the next will come out in 2021. But this is my first like creative nonfiction work that is explicitly mine about part of my story and just some theological themes. So this is my first book born into the world in this particular way. Yeah, and it's kind of a. I've been reading it, so it's kind of a. Uh, memoir slash with like kind of devotions sprinkled within right yeah i I kind of every chapter i take a story from my life and then a story from scripture and i kind of i weave them together so i go i bounce back and forth between my story and the story in scripture i'm going to each kind of explore different what i call these ordinary losses or ordinary death like the death of hope when we were in a really difficult congregation the death of expectations when um with some gender resistance in the pulpit and i interweave them with stories of scripture people who've experienced similar loss and seek to find the thread of um of resurrection of god bringing something new to life both in the biblical narrative um, and then seeking to find that that new life, that resurrection life in mine, my story as well. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to read this first paragraph. Yeah. Um, the church basement was like a casino, no <laughs> windows to indicate the day of time and no easy way out. Uh, had an hour passed or five minutes, it was anybody's guess. A group of people from our church, many of them members of the same extended family, sat across long tables avoiding eye contact with my husband and me. The adult daughter kept taking wild slurps of her fountain drink, seemingly to fill the painful, awkward silence. I didn't know it was possible to aggressively drink a big gulp, but it definitely is. (laughs) So first of all, I want to say that is an excellent opening paragraph for a book. Thank you. Um, You (laughs) you are a very good author. You you have, um, you're you're a good storyteller. So uh, it's, very captivating. I didn't know what to expect because I hadn't really read any of your other articles. Yeah. Anyway, it was very, uh, it pulls you in right away. I'll say that. So what, what was the precipitating factor of, I want to tell, you know, I want to tell my story. I want to tell, or I want to tell this story. Um, well, the, how the book came about wasn't necessarily I had this big plan, um, but an editor approached me and said, Hey, I've read some of your work. I think there might be a book in you. Can we talk? And at that point, I was like, ah, I think you have the wrong girl, <laughs> um, because that wasn't something that I felt like was on my radar. I hadn't been writing for publication for very long. Um, but she said, is there some like theme that you see in your life or in you know what God has done in your life that you feel like you could you could write about at length? And that theme for me was resurrection. It was this question that was posed to me by a district superintendent um, when we were in the midst of a, a significant church conflict. And he asked, when we just could not find resolution in this conflict, he said, is the resurrection enough? to bring us right. to, to the other side of this, to resolution. And at the time, the question didn't make sense to me. But over the past decade, um, have I, that has been just seared into my mind. It's a question I've been forced to ask many times. Like, is the resurrection enough? Does the resurrection have anything to say? Um, is it just a Jesus was raised from the dead, thus I you know, get a, you know, my sins wiped clean and you know, take it out of hell? Is that what this is all about? Or is God's resurrection actually a power that is breaking into creation now and that is right. beginning to restore things, even the small, ordinary things that don't even seem worth mentioning? Is it possible that God sees even those things and is bringing forth new life in the midst of what feels pretty dead? Yeah. Resurrection. If we don't have resurrection, what do we have, right? Yeah. 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 And so I, the way I kind of sold the book in a way to the editor was I said, I want to write a book for people who love Jesus very much, uh, but they're no longer willing to lie about what hurts. Yeah. 
So true. Can I ask you a little bit about uh, one other chapter? Like yeah, sure, go ahead. I don't know how much you want to talk about this, so whatever you want to say, whatever you don't want to say. Okay. Page 45, and you're talking about you just been diagnosed with depression, so clinical uh-huh. depression. Yeah. And talk about contemporary evangelical Christianity, particularly of the American variety, does not do disorientation well. Mm. It is much more comfortable uh, with the psalms of praise and rejoicing, or at the very least, the psalms that flee from anguish into the safe arms of redemption within a verse or two. None of this lingering in the belly of the beast. When it comes to depression, the church has often been silent or at least guarded, not for lack of caring, but for lack of understanding. Hmm. Which I think very much articulates what a lot of people feel and experience. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, so I wanted to ask you, because both obviously as, a pastor um, mm-hmm. who has, you know, a theological understanding as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe just talk about the difference between depression and a dark night of the soul. For sure. Uh, depression, um, I think there's several factors that come into depression. I can, I'll speak to my experience of depression. Um, yeah. For me, depression um, has a very distinct biological factor. It's something that is a part of my family's medical history. Um, and mm-hmm. so I knew that was possibly in the cards for me, though I did not understand at all what that was going to look like or feel like, um, and yet was somehow managed to be surprised when I was diagnosed. But for me, the depression um, doesn't necessarily root from, while it can root from a specific circumstance or time um, or like a specific right. season that's difficult, it can spring forth from that. Oftentimes, depression is not um, is inexplicable it doesn't have a specific cause sometimes it just descends without warning and things feel impossibly hard and heavy um, without a specific touch point say I you know I did this bad thing thus I feel this way or this bad thing was done to me thus I feel this way those although those are two causes of depression for other people Right. As well. Um, but for me, it was this sense of I am so weary and there is simply no hope on the horizon and everything feels too hard before I've even begun. Right. And my vision, not my physical vision, but just my you know, metaphorical vision becomes very disoriented, dis- very dis- um, disjointed and very cloudy. And I just can't see, I can't see the horizon. Um, I just have a sense of, of deep, deep shame and of an inability to, to do the task at hand, the wild insecurities. I mean, that's completely, that are really very irrational. And really my husband is the one who can often see those signs kind of coming forth. I I think we're slipping back into a a dark space here because it's expressed in those particular ways. A dark night of the soul, I feel, um, while the characteristics are probably pretty similar and how they, probably the emotional experience of them, I think um, Dark Night of the Soul is more of a a period of a spiritual, I think, spiritual desert in some ways of of going to this period where there, it does seem to be a very dark, dark space and you don't know exactly what God is doing, but there does seem to be some kind of directionality to it, even if you don't know what that direction is. There is this sense of um, God is leading me through this space and I don't know what the outcome will be, but there is a sense of, of, of directionality. With depression, it's like dead end. It's a dead end. Right. There, is, there is no future with depression. So that is how in my own life I've been able to distinguish it a little bit. They, like I said, the emotional experience I think is probably pretty similar, and other people might have a different perspective on it. But for me, that's how I can express the difference. That's good. I think there will be people who listen who – I mean, I've had 
periods of uh, having a dark night of the soul, but then I've also had periods of depression. So uh, sometimes I have to ask myself the question, okay, which one is this? Yeah. Because, you know, how you respond obviously is different. In depression, you may need, you know, counseling and medication and in dark yeah. night of the soul, you know, you might need you know, whatever time alone or sometimes counseling still. <laughs> yeah. Spiritual counseling and you brought up the spiritual director. Yeah. Um, so how long have you been doing the spiritual director piece is your disciple, personal discipleship? I started in the fall of, I can't remember. Oh, okay. So I was, no, it was 2017. It was 2017. Uh, 2017 is when I started the uh, meeting with the spiritual director. And it didn't, like, I didn't feel immediately bonded to that person. It took a little bit of time for me to really connect. Um, but as I kind of persisted in that, and in varying degrees, um, it became a real source of guidance and clarity for me. I was so devastated when we moved because she's in Boise and I'm here. And so oh. we ha- I have not continued that practice with her. Um, and I haven't been able to, to find someone here quite yet because some people are really familiar with that and comfortable with that. Some people are like, oh, that feels right. a little weird and outside our tradition. But it really is just <laughs> a spiritual friend. It's someone who has training in, not in counseling, but training in, um, in just in discernment, in spiritual discernment. And can help right. us just kind of tune our ears and pay attention to uh, what the Spirit is, is doing in us. That's something, I'm, a resource I've been able to find since the move, but um, was a very, very important resource for me for a couple years. Yeah, and how did you find your spiritual director when you were in Idaho? Um, just a friend, another Nazarene pastor actually uh, recommended it to me. And I just knew I was in, I felt stuck and I felt like, I was in just kind of this really negative cycle and I needed, I needed help. And I didn't need, I didn't need counseling. Like I know what counseling is. Right. I've done years of counseling. I didn't need right. that, but I needed someone who could help me see through the fog of what the Lord was doing in me um, in the midst of kind of some spiritual turmoil. And so my friend recommended this person and I went and met with her. Um, you talked a little bit about what God taught you. Well, you talk more about refining you. Mm-hmm. But what is God teaching you like now or lately? What is he kind of teaching you? Where is he growing you at the edges of your spirituality? I think that you know, there's the continuum. And this is for, for a three. If, I, if anybody's familiar with the Enneagram for the three, it's constantly, <laughs> yeah. um, am, I, am I curating a specific image to communicate my, uh, portray myself in a certain way to meet my own ego needs? And the Lord's continually, you know, working that out in me. Because in this particular role, I'm very, uh, it's a very visible role. Right. Which if I'm not in a healthy space, can be really toxic. And so when I find myself um, needing approval, seeking approval, you know, all those kind of things, I recognize, oh, you're slipping into an, un- un- an unhealthy space. You know, take a step back from the light, push someone else forward, take a little breath, remind that you are the beloved. It's apart from your performance. And so that's something the Lord's continually doing. Um, but yeah. honestly, coming since I've been here, it has been the most wild ride. The things that have been asked of me in terms of, um, what is required in this particular role and the way it happened in my particular case. Um, I came in, the, um, there was no staff. They had um, had resigned and had moved on to different assignments. And so I had to hire all new staff and I had to learn this new system and I had to, you know, like preach seven diff- or five different sermons in seven days. And like all the, I mean, the, quant- the quantity <laughs> of things being asked of me um, was radical. It felt so impossible. And yet every single time, I was preparing for a message. One time, I even at one point, like the earliest week, uh, first week of classes, I had to preach on Monday, Wednesday, and leave the service on Friday. And because um, we have chapel three times a week, and between on Tuesday, between sermon one and sermon two, I was so fatigued and distracted, I crashed my bike 
and got this, oh, no. smashed my face into the asphalt. And, like, I, I only had an outline. I had my sermon, my manuscript yet for the next day. And I'm like, what is going on? And every single time I found myself face-to-face with another requirement, another thing being asked of me, the Lord just was so faithful to show up. Yeah. So faithful to provide exactly what I needed, provided just good and godly staff for me to work with who we already have just a very intimate rapport, and I'm so blessed by them. Uh, God continuing to show up to provide the resources I need in terms of just, I need, we had no furniture in this office, and, and yeah. yet I, you know, the president has helped me with that, and things have come into place, and, you know, every time I've needed a sermon, how many times I've preached at this point is is just it's wild and yet the lord continually shows up and it's not anything to do with you know me or my capacity um although i know the lord has given me very distinct gifts and graces you know all glory to him because the lord continues to show up and provide what i need in the moment that i need it and i can rest secure in that space so um even now as every single day i'm learning oh guess what you're also in charge of this oh guess what you are also in charge of this and i'm like if this does not stop I am running away from you people. Um, but every time as I'm discovering new dimensions and facets of this work, I am just fully assured that the Lord will show up in that as well. And then that there's a way forward and that I can learn and I can grow. And the Lord has placed me in this time and will empower me to do the task at hand. So I am just grateful for the Lord's presence and provision in the midst of challenging days, exciting but challenging days. All new stuff. Everything's yeah. going to be new. I know, I know. I'm not a three, but I like new stuff too. So yeah. So would you share like a significant minute? You've had several significant ministry experiences, and I guess you've shared a few of them. Um, mm-hmm. This, you know, a couple of people coming to you and giving you a word and that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Was yeah. there a significant ministry experience that kind of stood out for you? Maybe, maybe it was a turning point in your ministry or something like that. Just a an opportunity you had to minister to someone or a group of people. In this particular since I've been here? Um, no, just any time in your ministry, even mm. whether it was in the pastorate or in yeah. your time in Italy. Yeah. I think the one I'll share is the one that has happened just most recently, if that's okay. Um, there's, yeah. I, if I could think, I mean, there's a thousand ways that the Lord has provided opportunities for me, I think, to serve, to be present with people in the midst of um, significant change and turmoil and all those things. and. You know, I could probably write another book about all those ways, the gifts the Lord has given me in that way. But, because um, they are gifts, right? Getting to participate in what God is doing in someone else's life. Most recently, a student came into my office, and when my office administrator, when she makes an appointment with students, I ask her, say, just ask them what it's about, because I, I don't know how about you about, if someone just says, hey, I need to talk to you, like, that is not a meeting I want to show up for. Like, I, I would right. like a little bit of information, because I'm an anxious <laughs> person, okay? And yeah. so, it, um, he just said, I just want to share what's on my heart, and I'm like, okay, where are we going with this, you know? And, because um, we had had some, had some kerfuffles on campus with some different things, and so it's just navigating life with emerging adults, first of all. But he comes into right. my office, and he sits in the chair, and he sits in the chair, and he said, I just want to tell you, I um, have felt called to children's ministry for a long time. And sometimes I feel a little bit embarrassed to say that because I'm a guy. And sometimes people will even say to me, "What? why are you doing that? That's like a woman's job. And he said, but ever since I've seen you in this role, and uh, your hus- my husband Tommy came in, and he had preached on women in ministry, actually, at my request, and said, uh-huh. God does not give us gifts according to our gender. God gives us gifts freely at the Spirit's will, and God is not intimidated by our gifts. And so your gifts are not a mistake. And he goes, since, you know, he said that, and since seeing you operate in this role that has only ever been occupied by a man, he said, I feel a new sense of freedom to embrace my call to be a pastor to children. And for me, 
it was such a gift to hear that. Yeah. Um, just to say that, that somehow my obedience, my spirit-empowered obedience, not of my own just strength, but the, the spirit-empowered obedience of my own life, of saying yes to being the first woman in this particular space, has not just given freedom to the, my female students, but my male students are experiencing freedom in Christ as well because they too, yeah. I think, are coming to see, you know, I can do what God has called me to do, what God has made me to do, and I don't have to be this particular thing because I am a guy or I am this or I am that. Um, I get to right. say yes to whatever the Lord has laid on my heart, and that was such a precious affirmation of the Spirit to me, just a reminder that my yes, no matter how small, um, my spirit-empowered yes to Jesus matters in the kingdom, and it can can nurture the seeds that are growing in the hearts of people around me. Um, and so I'm just grateful to the Lord for allowing me to be a participant in that particular transformation for that student. And you get to pour into all of these who are maybe exploring that, maybe hearing the call for first time. Yeah, sometimes, you know, yeah. Some of them mm-hmm. have, yeah. have never heard the call yet until they've, sat in chapel and then they start to hear God tapping on their heart. Mm-hmm. So what, let's, let's talk about advice you would give because you now that you have all of these students, you're going to be giving yeah. advice to, you know, whether it's, you know, from the pulpit or one-on-one. Uh, what advice would you give to someone exploring a call to ministry? And then it doesn't necessarily have to be male or female, but thinking about women in ministry, um, you know, obviously they, I mean, you know this as well as I do, that at some, it's not a question of if, but when you experience mm-hmm. pushback. This advice on responding to the call, or maybe you're in that place where you started questioning the call, even though you've already said yes, um, yeah. and wrestling with that, that you would have for them? Yeah. Well, I think first for someone exploring, the op- exploring ministry, um, I would suggest, getting involved, trying different things, and even things that you don't necessarily think might be a good fit, you know, um, trying to volunteer in, in your congregation in different aspects, different parts of ministry, um, even some of the administration, like administration is a gift within the church context as well. And so yes. don't think that your gifts, because they're not necessarily, I don't think I'm a public speaker. That doesn't mean you're not called to ministry. It means maybe your ministry is a different angle of ministry. So I think familiarizing oneself with what ministry actually looks like on the ground can be a really helpful thing. You know, develop relationships yes. with some pastors that you feel comfortable asking um, really honest questions. Like, what do you do on a Tuesday? Um, I think can be really, really helpful. <laughs> And then finding ways to actually serve, you know, to put that into practice and to, to find um, to ways to get involved. I think that's really, really helpful. And then there's some awesome some denominational resources. You know, take a, you know, try taking a, um, a course of study class, you know, and just, just explore. Like, what does this feel like? How do I, how does my, you know, my heart respond when I'm beginning to study in this way? Or even some of the lay discipleship courses they have online through the discipleship place. Expose yeah, yourself to true. some of that theological training um, and just see, you know, what comes alive in you or do you literally want to pull your hair out might not be the route for you that's fine <laughs> um but there's so many ways that you can explore those those routes without you know making it immediate vocational shift um there's so many ways to explore so i would suggest that and then what was the second question again women oh, when you, uh, you know back you you know you start off really gung-ho and then you get that pushback and now you're starting to doubt whether or not god called you maybe maybe just something yeah, even practical of how do you push through? Yeah, you know. 
Yeah. Oh, that's it is hard. And you're right. There is a sense of it's not an if but when. Um and it doesn't mm-hmm. always manifest explicitly as someone saying, Oh, you're a woman, you can't do this thing but it can be pushed back mm-hmm. against, you know, oh you're too loud or oh your hair is a distraction or all these things that <laughs> yeah. are or are gendered in and of themselves, you know. Someone called my pregnancy one my a, a situation. Like, I'm sorry you aren't able to share this weekend because of your situation. I'm like, you mean my child that was born? Oh, thank you. You know, so things like that are just, it's a, man, you, you got to laugh or you'd cry because I do both. Yeah. Um, I would just say, you know, continually surround yourself by people who you know are going to speak truth into you. Um, and so that when that feedback does come and it, and it hurts, that you're able to turn to, to people that, you, that believe in you and believe in your call and that you can come to them and say, this is what I've been given. And they can say, they can help you debunk the lies, right? Because so often when people, right. when criticism comes, it's hard. Like, is this true? Um, is, this, is this the enemy? You know, whatever. And so have people in your life that you can, that can really are allowed to speak truth to you to debunk the lies and also say, actually, no, you do need to work on this, you know, particular area, but people that love and trust and encourage you no matter what, that's certainly central and continue to lean into, um, into God's call in your life. You know, the ways that God's called you, the ways that God has affirmed you and write them down if you need to, you know, write down the moments where someone has affirmed you in ministry, you know, save those emails and save those cards and save those things to be reminded, like actually God has done good work in and through me. And so on those days where Mm -hmm. you feel like everybody's throwing you under the bus, uh, be reminded of that person who they felt seen for the first time because they saw you. They saw you doing yeah. the work, and they thought, maybe me too. And so those moments are moments we need to cherish to feed our soul in the times when we feel like we're being constantly rejected. Yeah, that's a good reminder. I do have a file in my in my home office drawer yes. of notes and emails yeah. that people have sent. And periodically I'm like, oh, I, I, I need to do some positive reading. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, for myself. Yeah. Well, uh, I am really excited to finish reading your book. I think I'm about yeah. a third way through, and it's been great reading your story, and I think I appreciate that you don't wrap it all up with a nice, beautiful <laughs> bow because um, yeah. none of us have completely figured this thing out. So, But if people want to connect with you, they can do that, right? You have a website. Yep. Yeah, it's just my name, stephanielobdell.com, which sounds <laughs> so three-ish of me. There you go. But um, that's where everything's like just hubbed at. You know, you can get links to my book. There's actually um, the introduction first chapter are both available for free on my website as well as a downloadable study guide. So if it's a book that you want to read with friends to discuss, there is a study guide that was written by another Nazarene pastor that you can just download for free right off my website and use that as a book guide. Oh, that's great. I didn't didn't know about that. And I I think that there will be people who you know, maybe they're nervous about talking about uh, loss and grief, which we need to talk about more, not less. And so I, I think that that will be a great resource for people. Yeah. Well, good. Well, thank That's you very awesome. much. I appreciate that. All right. Well, I'm going to have to get down to Ohio one of these yeah, days. Yeah, love to have hear you. you. Yes, I'm not uh, that far. So thank you so much for taking yes, the time out of you. your day. 